equals spin The propaganda's win Stress feeding on my tension My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now Displayed with good intentions Welcome to One of Two Hundred, the New Zealand Independent Media and Politics podcast. You're here for another weekend of current events with three co-hosts. We have me, Philip. We also have Kyle. How are you doing, Kyle? Yeah, good. Been a big week. Uh, and it'll continue to be big weeks uh, until, I don't know, the end of the year, at least. Not that many weeks to go now. Exactly. How are you doing, Josephine? We also have Josephine on the line. Tēnā katoa, everyone. Yeah, I'm doing okay. Um, yeah, pretty bored by a lot of the <laughs> election stuff. It's not an in- inspiring election, so um, interested to reflect upon um, all that discourse around the election. Mm, yeah, we're absolutely going to get into that uh, stuff later, but the election's coming up day by day. Uh, the daily hourly countdowns are, are counting down. The doomsday clock ticks a minute closer to midnight um, as our wonderful futures uh, encroach, encroach upon us with the enthusiasm of a, a boot slowly crushing us all beneath uh, <laughs> its heel. Um, we're going to talk about a few things this week. It's been a, it's been quite hectic. Um, you could you could either see that as uh, events happening in the in the same week as they do sometimes, or you could say that you know media is paying attention uh, to more things that maybe otherwise would have slipped by. But it does feel like it's been one of the more hectic ones after some weeks of quite uh, bland sort of attempted coverage from two uh, low-profile campaigns trying to outbore each other and uh, put all the commentators to sleep. Uh, but the first thing we want to talk about is news of the of the hour, of the day. Uh, the Māori Party candidate, she's 21 years old, she's fourth on the Māori Party list, Hana uh, Rafati Maipi Clark. Um, she's pretty likely to get in and be the youngest MP in 170 years, I think, from memory, um, if she does get into Parliament, which is an interesting kind of factoid. Uh, she was the Māori Party spokesperson at the Young Leaders Debate on, uh, I think, TV1, and she did a really good job, pretty, pretty good kind of account of herself um, for someone so insanely young, talented, good speaker. But her home was entered, vandalised, a threatening letter left behind, uh, and according to the Māori Party's press release, that's the third incident that's taken place at her home this week. So this sort of uh, puts a, a cap on the kind of violent rhetoric we've been seeing ramping up for the last few weeks and the last few months, all year really, um, potentially stoked by all sorts of different actors, right, as we've been discussing for for a long time. Um, and this is far from a um isolated incident but it is probably the most egregious and extreme one um just a quick note we probably won't talk about this much but also the labor candidate angela roberts was slapped at a rotary club debate um the other day which is also pretty extreme i think she's taken that to the police so we probably shouldn't talk about it too much um but you know a rotary club debate is seen as the more kind of staid uh conservative end of the spectrum which, you know, depending on your perspective, you might be surprised that that's the kind of activities that go on there. Or if you're a leftist, you might not be surprised because uh, that's where violence resides, perhaps. Okay, Kyle, you've been, um, what, ex- excited, enthused, jazzed about the increase in political violence this year? <laughs> <laughs> Stoked, juiced. Wow, I've been tell smeared. Us, tell I've us all smeared. about it. 
Look, this is something that we have been talking about on the podcast on and off in the five years that we've been recording. Um, There's been a steady shift uh, towards more violent rhetoric. We've seen violent actions taking place um, that have been not really as moored to political parties. But in the last two to three years, in this last term, really, we've seen more political parties that are outside the fringe ones, you know, that everyone loves to focus on as being the crazies um, and will never really have an impact on um, on our parliament. Uh, we've been seeing that rhetoric picked up by established parties like New Zealand First and the ACT Party. And I think even as early as July last year, we were talking very specifically about this election um, in 2023 um, and how it's going to get increasingly nasty with this stuff if there wasn't more accountability um, and whether that came in the form of coverage from the media of the political parties and astroturf groups uh, that were actively out in the community um, trying to peddle this shit um, or from the political parties themselves to just, you know, decide not to go after the electorate in this way. Uh, during this campaign, that's just ramped right up. Um, and again, it's it's down to both the media and the parties themselves. We can't keep letting people like David Seymour hide behind it's it's a joke though uh when they're using violent rhetoric uh and people who are reporting on it and in wider society can't keep ignoring the fact which we all know that it normalizes the stuff at the fringes i'm 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 so unsurprised that this has happened i'm sadly going to be unsurprised if it doesn't get worse um we have seen this happen in every western democracy uh over the last decade you know people like an mp a, a labor mp was murdered in the uk um within the last decade by a person on the far right um you've had the same kind of stuff happen in the us with people being uh with senators being shot um I it comes down to this New Zealand exceptionalism thing again, I think on some level. Um and we've talked about that as well. And we just people are unwilling to accept um or intentionally refusing to accept the fact that it could happen here. Um, oh no, you know, act aren't really like that. David Seymour's not really like that. He's just looking for that like part of the vote. It's it is just dog whistling. No, it's it's we're we're past that. We've been past that for a while. Um and unless we see some incredibly serious soul searching from the people in the space, both political and journalistic, we're on a really bad track.
Well, my perspective on this is when, you know, I heard Hannah speak, um, I thought she was referring to, you know, the colonial process of, you know, uh, looting of land and, you know, coming in and taking away, um, you know, the collective prop, you know, land, the Fenua of Maori. I, I thought it was a metaphor, um, you know, um, referring to the colonial violence Maori have faced in New Zealand. I didn't realize that it was actually an incident that happened, you know, right now. Because if you if you think about it, you know, uh, all the people up in arms about, for example, ram raids or these sorts of crimes, um, you know, we need to look at, look back into the history of New Zealand and see the origin of these sorts of things. It happened at a systemic level. Uh, where people were displaced from their land and displaced from their livelihood and their, you know, means of livelihood and security. And so I thought it was a metaphorical, you know, um, recalling of the history of New Zealand. Um, in terms of violence, I'm, I, want to, I want to refocus away from, you know, individual violence and look at violence in this election from a different lens. Um, the violence experienced by the poorest people in New Zealand. Um, this is happening. This is political violence, isn't it? Um, the fact that, for example, globally, um, if you look at figures from similar countries, homeless people die about 30 years earlier than the general population. This is a form of violence on poor people. Um, there's ongoing violence, people in emergency housing, we heard cases of violence within emergency housing and how people are, who ha are the victims of um, systemic and structural violence um, from the settler colonial capitalist state. Um, they are punished again through a systematically racist criminal justice system. This is the form of violence that, you know, is is never discussed. Um, and I, I, I like to focus on those forms of violence. Um, and you know, it's like, nobody talks about it in as violence. Children in poverty, you know, this was a huge, big aspiration of um, Ardern. She said the main purpose of her being in politics is to address child poverty. There has been some improvements, but these are not very significant improvements. There's still one in four Pacifica children, one in five Maori children uh, living in poverty. This is violence. And this is a form of violence emanating from the structures, the political structures of this country. And we don't talk of it as violence. And I just wanted to uh, just add that to the discourse um, uh, around this topic. And I just think that ram raids are a good metaphor for what happened to Maori during the period of colonialism in that, you know, that... And it was backed by state and the British <laughs> British colonial instruments. And so it was far more systematic and violent than, you know, the, the events, one-off events that we see today. And it would be good to uh, re refocus our um, focus on to systemic and structural violence. I think that's something that is often missed in the kind of milieu of rhetoric as well, right? Um, it's not just that David Seymour is joking about uh, blowing up the Ministry of Pacific Peoples. It's that his entire policy platform is structured to increase violence against the vulnerable. Um, and that's it, almost taken as 
as wrote. We, we don't actually interrogate that as all, at all. We only interrogate his violent speech. Um, and same with National, um, with all their new sanction stuff coming out uh, this week, with the places are going to make cuts. Um, we don't uh, we don't talk about the kind of violent effect that's going to have either. But that also adds to this heavy weight in the discourse around what's permissible uh, among you know people who are maybe happy to take more extreme actions. In the um, in the debate the other night, the second debate uh, between Chris and Chris, there was um, one interesting moment where they were asked if they thought that New Zealand was a racist country, um, and Chris Luxon said, uh, "No, but there are racist people in New Zealand," and Chris Hipkins said, "No, but uh, there are political actors trying to, you know, jazz up basically race bait, uh, dog whistle, right?" Uh, and that Chris Luxon was working with those people, obviously talking about uh, Winston Peters and probably Seymour. But as Josephine's saying, like there's a third layer to that that's ongoing structural political and economic violence that happens on a daily basis. And I think probably anyone on, on the left would agree that both of those two people are two prime perpetrators of the kind of structural racist violence that happens disproportionately to poor brown people, right? So, I mean, Labour hasn't got rid of the all of the sanctions. They haven't followed up on the uh, WIAG recommendations that they got in, I think, the first year that they came in. They've had years to do so. They've had a full majority. They've had unparalleled support from the electorate. Um, and, you know, as happens every election, when people start asking, is New Zealand a racist country? I, I mean, what does that mean when, when all of the outcomes for brown people are worse than all of the outcomes for white yeah, people. By definition, I don't yes. Know, yes, yeah, by definition. What, what do you mean? Like, the country doesn't have a single uh, mentality. And this is the problem with the liberal understanding of uh, racism being, a, you know, poison in the mind type stuff, right? And we're not we're not going to, like, pray our way out of individual racism. But when you're, when you're talking about structural outcomes, there's plenty you can do. So I think there's that sort of outer layer that Josephine's talking about that's like, ongoing structural the most important type of, of violence that we can really consider as a society when it comes to outcomes and then within that there's like the allowable conversation right the like um everything outside that is occluded what, what you're allowed to discuss is this kind of uh mentality of racism where only you know the cookers the like freedom nz types who had another pretty ineffectual seeming march in wellington uh this week um you're allowed to call them racist if you're kind of more mainstream and then within that again if you're like a, a left liberal or you have you play like respectability politics maybe you call Winston Peters racist even though he's slightly less extreme again and then within that you know there are these like circles of who you're allowed to call racist depending on your social class essentially right it's not a genuine like analysis of the world as it is that's kind that, of my perspective anyway that said some of the rhetoric coming out of individuals has definitely making this worse um, and I think it wouldn't be as much of an issue if it then didn't get um, replicated over and over again uh, by our journalists. Like, it's basically all we have um, in this discussion. Someone will say something and then either um, they'll get a headline out of it. So think back to initial um, attacks on co-governance last year 
uh, all of which came off the back of a roadshow by the taxpayers union who are running up and down the country um, saying that this was apartheid by stealth kind of shit. You know, this is the same kind of rhetoric as Julian Batchelor, who's starting to start a race war is using um, and the act, the act party itself is using as well. Uh, the media were happy to get in on that. They're happy to get in on attacks on Nanaya Mahuta um, for perceived, uh, you know, Maori elite nepotism or however they chose to frame it at any given point that becomes part of that structural milieu as well where it becomes okay to think about it in that way and the more extreme rhetoric needs that in order to kind of clip onto um, in my opinion Uh, and that's where we head down kind of the road to direct political violence at an individual level um, at the moment, Um, but in in a way that's somewhat different uh, from the structural violence that is enacted every every day. Yeah, I just want to comment on New Zealand and racism. It's it's a difficult topic. If you ask me, is New Zealand a racist country? It's how how can you, you know, it's a... It's a colonial country based in capitalism. This is the answer. Is this racist? I don't know if racist is a good, you know, concept to use here. I think it's about the dominant, you know, systems of knowledge. What do people learn when they are born in New Zealand, right? They they learn that, for example, Western systems are have worked and, you know, non-Western systems are failures, our non-Western systems are corrupt, for example. Um, the countries in the global south are poor because they have inferior systems and cultures, and we have a better system and culture over here. This is, you know, it's it's um, reinforced through media, and this has become the common denominator of the knowledge in New Zealand. So at an individual level, whether you treat a person, you know, um, with with dignity or not, more than that, uh, this has an impact on at, at the structural level. And this, this sort of like common sense dominant knowledge is being um, tapped into by people on the right wing, including um, at and um and New Zealand first, for example. When I see when I see Uncle Winnie talk, it's almost like it reminds me of Dave Chappelle's um um one of his skits uh, about a KKK leader who you know is blind. Uh, he doesn't know that he's a black person, and he becomes the most prominent thought leader of the KKK. And then at one meeting of the KKK, his mask falls down, and then everyone's surprised. There's you know like a aghast that this is actually a black person it's similar like to me what um what um, winnie represents is the dominant systems of knowledge in new zealand that everyone is raised in regardless of you know their ethnic identity or regarding of their regardless of their identity so when for example someone like um Um, David Seymour says we need to punish the beneficiaries. They are lazy. This is not simply coming from nowhere. This is, this is the logic upon which our system is currently residing. And everyone is going ahead with it, right? We have a system that 
does not challenge the power of the wealthy. Instead, it has, you know, it blames the poor for systemic failures. It blames the poor for um, the problems that are in the design of the system, right? Right now we are hearing Adrian or other, you know, general academics from, uh, from economics. We can also hear industrialists, all these people coming together. We have a, you know, government person, Adrian, or we have uh, ec economists. Mood of the boardroom. Yeah, mood of the boardroom. General economists, you know, I'm not even saying um, right-wing economists. This is just general e economists, as well as um, as well as capitalists coming together, saying we need to engineer more unemployment. On the one hand, they're saying this. On the other hand, they are, in, you know, the entire uh, discourse is about how can we discipline the poor and punish them, right? So this is the logic of the system, and act and um. And other right-wing parties are not are, are actually banking on this common, you know, quote unquote, common sense understanding of people about the system. And so it sells itself, it not because people are cruel or people are bad or morally horrible. It's because this is the logic that has been drilled into us from the time we were born, from all, you know, main sources of knowledge. We talk about misinformation and disinformation. I would argue the biggest source of disinformation are the institutions that surround us from the time we are born, whether it's the government, whether it's the media, you know, all these things. The New Zealand media, Kyle, you always, you know, you're on a rant against New Zealand media. What else can we expect from a media that's based in capitalism and also, you know, that doesn't question um, the um, the logic of liberal democracy, which, you know, in my view, liberal democracy is a failure because it does not it does not challenge the power of the people who have all the economic resources accumulated within them. So liberal democracy allows and facilitates capitalism. And that is taken as a, a common, you know, agreed upon point by all media, not only that, but, you know, they're also operating on profits. Um, so we can't expect something better from mainstream media, um, but we can expect better from left leaders, left politicians, and they're not doing better. They're still operating on these same principles. They're not challenging, you know, the system that designed suffering, that's designed to quote Engels, social murder upon, you know, those who are the victims of the system. It doesn't question it. Nobody questions it. So the left leaders need to question it. And it's not like, you know, even parties, I'm going on a rant. I'll just <laughs> complete this with one more. I, I was recently watching um, an interview of uh, Rawiri Waititi of uh, Maori Party, and Jack Tame is interviewing him. And I was like, um, the whole time Jack Tame, you know, was almost um, kind of like carrying the mantelpiece of New Zealand <laughs> settler colonial state in kind of, in this whole approach was kind of like dismissive of Maori Party's um, policies, for example. And he says, you want to, uh, propose this much tax, wealth tax, which is higher than what Greens are 
are proposing, uh, how are you going to go about it? Won't the rich people leave New Zealand? And instead of saying, let them leave, Rauri Waititi says, uh, you know, um, he accepts that we need rich people, you know? So even the left parties are not a able to go beyond the neoliberal capitalist, you know, liberal democratic uh, status quo and the and the parameters set by the system. So to me, if they ask such a question, the left leaders will be like, yeah, fuck, let them leave. They can't take our fenua, they can't take our forests, they can't take our water. We can create a much more equitable, um, a much better working economy from the grow from the ground up. If they, you know, leave. If you look at the wealthiest in New Zealand, they are just sitting on our our collective wealth. They should leave. They they can't take their their properties with them. They'll be here. We can repurpose them and use them in ways that address the needs of the people of Aotearoa. This is one of those really odd pieces of rhetoric which is never really questioned around capital flight um where people are like oh we're going to tax them a tiny bit more and everyone yells like oh they're all gonna run away and then what will you do what do you mean like we're already not (laughs) they don't do anything the job creators myth is already gone the trickle down myth is already gone what what do they take the only thing they could give us is if we were taking more tax from them. And you're saying they're not going to allow that to happen. So, yeah, okay, they're gone. See ya. Bye, bitch. And I'm also curious about why we can't propose from the left an Employment Guarantee Act from the state, for example. Many countries have it, including India, for the poor people. The Indian government has a National Rural Employment Guarantee Act, which the government will give at least 100 days of work in a year. That's guaranteed, you know. And this is well, you know, it's supposed to be um, good, better paid and, you know, um, but of course, there's problems in that implementation in India and all that, but also other countries. I read recently that Sweden, um, I was reading about uh, domestic violence and uh, the structures that are available for people to leave domestic violence. And uh, employment guarantee, for example, it, it, it not only addresses economic insecurity, um, if the government is creating a public works department, which we had, I think, what was it called? Ministry of Works or something. Um public works department we we do need to build our infrastructure to transition away into a sustainable economy and so forth um the government could be a a guaranteed employment provider for people who you know require employment um this is not being discussed and i don't know why uh, just I think mostly just oh it would cost too much like that's more that's more money out on the balance sheet we're so locked into that false narrative that both the major parties uh, find it inescapable. It's fucked. Yeah, so instead of actually addressing uh, unemployment, they want to create more unemployment and punish the unemployed. So that is seems to be what is, you know, going on right now. If, if, if ACT Party or other parties are interested in lifting people out of um, 
unemployment, then they should come up with some other policies that would, you know, actually provide employment. The way the economy is going, it's trying to engineer unemployment to address address um, inflation rather than addressing um, excess profits. Yeah, very, very convenient um, to argue publicly in favor of higher unemployment at a systematic level and also in favor of more sticks to beat individual unemployed people with to get them employed right at the same time it's yeah and at the same at the same time it really shows the the kind of perversity in the system that those are two things that need to coexist they need to be individual blame put on people who are fulfilling the social function that you've already created for them right people are, people need to be unemployed to keep your your profits going and uh, to try to push inflation down by your metrics and yet you know at the same time they need to be individually punished for doing what you've specifically told them to do <laughs> it's a it's a real you know it's a yeah. conundrum for them and another logic that is not being it's not being challenged is that you know we need to have more money from one source in order to you know in order to do a little bit more in terms of so- social security and supporting people I don't know if that's the case. In my view, the government has enough resources to actually improve some of their programs, including, for example, something like um, dental, uh, universal dental. Um, Greens keep asserting that by doing this wealth tax, we will get this. But what the question is, when it comes to give, you know, giving money to the wealthy, <laughs> the government has infinite sources. Like during the... Um, during the COVID uh, wage subsidy, I think it was 40 billion that came out of thin air that wasn't even accounted for in in the budget. And it's like, where is the public spending at the moment? It's, in my view, it's going to benefit the already wealthy. It's a question of repurposing our public spending in ways that addresses the the failures of the system. Mm, Yeah, there's a really kind of uh not even economistic but maybe kind of balance sheet myopia that yeah. seems to like infect the the media class of re-election um and obviously between as well like all of the business journalists who do well seem to be the ones with the smallest possible kind of aperture of what they'll they'll talk about there are good business journalists but they tend to kind of fade from public view and become kind of economics academics <laughs> because we'll have to leave the mainstream have, media um kind of wheelhouse uh yeah. to actually pursue it like i think bernard hickey's been doing good work um in that kind of business space but only yeah, only since he's um been independent has he really been able to go hard on this stuff mm. because there's there's a really kind of uh they they only allow themselves kind of 15 seconds to get a concept across like there was a really interesting comment on uh midweek media watch on rnz the other day from uh Mark Leishman, who was interviewing uh, Colin Peacock, he, he's been doing interviews with different politicians around rural issues. And he said he was interviewing David Seymour and he was and David Seymour was answering questions so fast and moving on to the next one so quickly that he ran out of time. He didn't he ran out of questions before the time ran out, because mm. that's that's the kind of politician that thrives, you know, between elections, especially when all mm. they have to do is churn out a soundbite for the 6 p.m. news. That's why David Seymour has been such an effective operator with the Act Party is that's all they are. They're a series of slogans that they know will play well. And once you actually start to talk to them, you can see already like 
some of the gears are falling apart in the ACT Party because as soon as they have to speak for more than 15 minutes, they don't have anything to say. Like in the debates, he's been incredibly weak, right? Especially was, when he gets pushed uh, back on. He just hmm. he short circuits. It's incredible he doesn't have to anything to say. He's not, you know, he's not a deep thinker. He doesn't really have a kind of coherent ideology beyond a series of kind of slogan words. And once he once he's got past that, you can see that in the multi-party debate last week, right? The um, commentators afterwards were like, he lost the crowd. Like, no one's interested in what he has to say anymore. And and also we must question, you know, I've been questioning this. Um, I've seen, for example, um, Maori scholars coming on TV and urging people to vote and things like that. And um, to me, this election has been hugely uninspiring. And I'm, I'm questioning what the hell is the system for, right? Like, if you look at the governments that have been in place in the last, I don't know, decade as a reference point. These guys are going into Wellington in their offices and doing some, in my view, superficial debates about slight incremental things here and there without even, you know, moving or even even touching the massive crisis the poly crisis that we are facing right now to me the whole exercise seems to be um um you know a, a scam or a, a, a fraud we they are defrauding the people of Aotearoa they're going there I remember during Cyclone Gabriel or something um there was a parliament session and there was um labor and national and they were just like having a laugh and you know very light debates that don't even touch upon uh, the major issues fighting uh, facing New Zealand people I mean to me, I'm not surprised that people feel disillusioned and drop out from um, even voting. I suspect that there will be a lower voter turnout this year. And I, and I think it is a legitimate position to take on the system. Uh, and we can see that, for example, Maori um, areas have much lower turnout than you know other areas in New Zealand. And it's a question of what has the system done right and it hasn't done anything we need to question this the logics and the principles which underline uh, liberal democ our liberal democracy and like this mmp system in my view is also a failure in that on both sides, um, we can see minor parties, but they're really not powerful. In my view, ACT Party, for all its barking, it's still a lapdog of national. Um, if ACT actually crosses the line of national, you know, national might take back their Epsom seat. And um, the voters of Epsom, these are extremely wealthy people. They know that they need ACT uh, national for ACT to be, you know, uh, relevant. So, um, in my view, ACT and other minor parties don't really have much power in the system. They're being sheepdogged by the centrist party, uh, whether it's na it's Labour and National. And um, year term after term, we're just getting centrist policies. Um, Greens are not willing to flex their power or use strategic um, politics to push their policies. So it's just... Yeah, it's just overall disillusioning. And yeah, in my view, if we have been watching uh, politics for the last, I don't know, uh, nearly 180 years, um, we should be disillusioned by the system and be thinking about um, uh, 
re rethinking or revising the foundations upon which it is built. Yeah, I found this kind of an interesting discussion in the last uh, month or so, I suppose. I've seen that a lot from different uh, leftists of kind of different political stripes slightly or different kind of focuses. Uh, and not just leftists, centrists, centre-leftists, liberals. Um, and there's definitely like a, an aura of uh, disengagement or lack of enthusiasm or being dejected. Um, and I'm finding it increasingly interesting from like a, uh, I suppose, a strategic mentality perspective. Like it, I think it shows something about where people are grounding their politics as individuals and as communities, the reasons that they have for being disengaged in different ways, right? So there are the the Josephines of the world who are like, this, this shows that like this entire entire like political structural edifice is not working. Um, and I've seen like a lot of those like reasonings come out and then there's a more individualistic, but I think also um, pretty coherent case that this is in terms of like explanations for why this election, like I think that's an interesting question is like, why is it this election that's making you feel this way? Right. We've had, we've seen like structural failures and individual failures and party based failures in politics for all of my lifetime. So like, why is it this election that so many um, people in our kind of uh, area are, are like feeling it particularly? So I think the more individualistic case of it is that uh, COVID sort of cohered this uh, disingenuous sense of solidarity, perhaps. And that after that, there's this like breaking up and atomization and people have been have gone down various kind of, you know, quote unquote, disinformation rabbit holes. And maybe there's been more of a sense of isolation after that, which I think is also like a case you can make. Um, the case that I get frustrated with is the party hack case where people talk about Labour not fulfilling their their promise to be left wing or whatever, which I fundamentally disagree with because I didn't see a convincing promise from Labour in the last two elections to be left wing. I don't think that's who they were. And I thought it was very clear that if you've been paying attention to them, if you've been paying attention to Jacinda's history, to Grant Robertson's history, to Chris Hipkins' history, these are not leftists. You know, These guys aren't on your team. So what frustrates me is I think mostly centre leftists and Labour Party supporters saying they feel disillusioned this election because the, I, because I think the implicit argument behind that is that they thought that Labour had their back and they don't. And that annoys me as somebody who's been arguing for my entire life that they do not have your back, you know, and we've all been able to see that. There's been evidence for that. For our, you know, since the Full Sure and Seabed Act, the ERA, uh, Knifing Materia in 2017, there's like a very explicit, Operation 8, like very explicit examples, TPPA, of through our entire like political awareness in New Zealand, that these are not leftists, you know, these mm -hmm. are managerial centrists who want the reins of power and to gradually kind of, while maintaining a neoliberal structure, maintain enough alliances with the bosses and the landlords to kind of redistribute some of that in a Blairite way down to some, uh, you know, deserving poor, what have you. Um, and sure, there are well-meaning individuals in that structure, but that, that doesn't mean they have your back, to quote uh, Chris Hipkins. And if you wanted leftist electoral movement to support they are not the ones like the greens are much closer to that for all their faults to party maori is much closer to that now you know the new iteration of to party maori i think is pretty strong um they have some actual leftist policy to campaign on so if you're an electoral le leftist I, I, that's what baffles me is people going oh what the hell like who do i vote for and my answer is like the same people you have every election like what what's changed <laughs> it's that from a from, from like a political platform pragmatic kind of perspective that's how i've been been seeing it
but sure there are like bigger picture reasons to be disenfranchised i get it yeah i think in the new zealand case in particular um it's this uh the way it's configured so that for most people e- even people who are you know interested in politics they do politics once every 3 years um and that's the way the entire system is set up it's how um like the media covers it it's this is when you make a decision and you know you see it in the states as well like with the kind of vote blue no matter who or whatever etc like there's a very rigid structure around how democracy looks but politics uh, will keep doing it to you throughout that and it's going to do it 10 years into the future based on your decision today um i think one of the really interesting uh shifts between the last two terms was uh, we're just talking about kind of centre-left, uh, neoliberal centrist kind of, not rhetoric, um, but considerations uh, from people who are, who, who are probably called left-wing, who are Labour supporters, who aren't a left-wing party, um, saying, oh, uh, Winston Peters and New Zealand first of the handbrake on the 2017 Labour government um, into a Labour majority where they did arguably less that, that is going to cause disillusionment. Like Jared, like as a as someone who has tied their political fortunes once every three years to a political party that they really did believe, um, did have their back. I, I like on an individual level, I can't fault that. Um, no, I can, I will. Um, but I'll be somewhat more charitable than I usually am. Um, I think that's not an excuse to be disillusioned and to throw your hands in the air. You cool. You've just learned something. That's empowering. Like now, fucking act. And in my, the way I sense it is like I'm not disillusioned. This election. This is we are at an incredible moment of crisis where even slight changes in direction will have a huge impact over the next twenty years. And that's how you need to be thinking about politics in the like Western liberal democracy form, because. It's going to keep getting worse if you can't write the tracks whenever you get the opportunity. Like a, a shift to national now will be significantly worse, um, especially if it's being pulled by uh, ACT and New Zealand First. Uh, their policies are absolutely ludicrous out the gate. And I don't see this national party as a group of people who are able to stop that from happening. Labour is also bad. We had Council Trade Union's uh, Chief Economist Craig Rennie on the podcast Earlier in the week, uh, one of the points he was making was fair pay agreements. If you vote for National, they are gone. If you vote for Labour, they are not gone. Um, and, you know, that's not a huge systems change, but it is a significant difference in the ability of workers to bargain and communicate um, and have like decent lives that provides an environment to organize better over the next three years and I, I hate that we're talking about marginal shit but like that's kind of where we are in terms of democratic processes there's a lot more that needs to also be done i actually disagree i think that um a party like labor uh is actually a more effective um manager of neoliberalism than a national or when these guys come out, come up, we can see way more. We will see way more scrutiny on their on their policies, especially from you know the center left and the left in general. Um, if you look at what 
you know, Labour has done. I mean, yeah, of course, there's some good policies like the Fair Play Agreement. Um, but in my view, uh, this was like a, it's, it's almost like a smokescreen to what really happened behind the scenes where it was a massive enrichment of the all, already rich that happened behind the scenes. And so it's like, it's, it, it, it's not challenging neoliberalism. It actually entrenches it and gives it legitimacy, especially when we even have um, even have Green Party as part of this government. Although you know they will say we were not, <laughs> but whatever. But they were they were part of this government in terms of the public eye. Um, Marama Davidson was oh, yeah. the whole minister of if homelessness. If you have ministers, you're part of government. I think. Yes, yeah. I, 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 I want to say I'm by no means otherwise. Uh, saying vote for Labour. <laughs> I want to be very clear about it. Vote as left as possible. No, I, I I agree with you on that point. Yeah. So we have. We have Marama Davidson as the Minister of Homelessness. I mean, uh, it didn't, it, any, nothing really changed in terms of this insignificant improvement in these areas. It's, uh, it, it, you can't, you can't fault public, the public for becoming um, disillusioned and less um, faithful in these options um, on you know, on the so-called left. In my view, they're not even left, including Green Party. Well, a lot of their policies I agree with, but look at their environmental policies. It's a continuation of a neoliberal climate approach. It's simply using funds and giving it to um, polluting and hugely profitable um, industries instead of mitigating and, uh, you know, preventing um, uh, the impacts of climate change on the most vulnerable populations. I think um, I think Green Party is by and large, you know, located within um, the ideology of neoliberalism to some to to a great extent. So, it, yeah, I don't really know, and I'm not really, I'm not really convinced that we can, be, you know, we can blame people for not not being um, disillusioned or sorry for being disillusioned and not supporting the left. I think the left has had a great opportunity in the last six years, and they've. As they've blown it. And Philip, I take your point that, you know, they're the Labour is not the left. But if you look at Labour, it's still a major party in New Zealand. And what is this riding on? This is riding on Labour Party's legacy and Labour Party's history as, you know, the major carrier of a lot of working class interests in New Zealand. The union movement continues to support Labour because of this history and legacy. So people, regardless of whether they are, you know, following their individual politicians' histories or their policies um, very closely, they just associate Labour with the party that will stand up for, um, you know, people who are struggling and working people, but they've they've done the opposite. And the other question we have to also ask is, is this really, um, Kyle, is, is also, is this really a democracy? Like, we are going to vote, right? But are, is what does that mean? <laughs> In 2017, I, you know, I saw, I wanted Labour to come to power because of a lot of the, the, their policies that they said, that this is my defining policy, addressing child poverty, making universities a public, you know, um, more uh, publicly uh, um, accessible, um, all these sorts of amazing capital gains tax, making um, housing affordable and so forth. And, and they just one by one broke each and every of those promises. So, 
Yeah, it's like, what is democracy? So we have voted for those policies and they have still not kept the promise to the voters. Then who did the then who do the parties keep their promises to and go, you know, beyond in order to support and protect all the parties um, that have been in power, whether it's Labour or National, they go above and beyond in protecting the interests of the wealthy because within a capitalist state, both Labour and National know that there's a lot of power sitting in the hands of the people who own the resources in this country. The top 10% who own 60% of this wealth, those are the people and the ones just below them that both Labour and National need to keep in their good terms. Otherwise, we will get media, you know, attacks from the media. We will get um, lobbyists. We will get political donations. All these powers will come against them. And and um, and this is it, you know, I don't think we live in a democracy. This is not a democracy. A democracy is the place where, it, you know, people's needs are being addressed. The democratic needs of the people are given priority over the profits of individuals. This is my understanding. This is how I look at democracy. If a democracy fails at addressing the basic needs of the people, you can't call it a democracy. If you look at political say, we don't hold political, equal political yeah, say. Yeah, one party, one, the like one person, person, one vote share. It's just crap. Exactly. It's not real. It's an illusion to maintain, you know, the larger power structure that already exists in New Zealand, which is a, you know, settler colonial capitalist sort of power structure that exists. Uh, liberal democracy is a smokescreen that allows this to continue. And I will just uh, conclude this section by quoting Marx. Um the executive of the modern state is nothing but a glorified committee to manage the common affairs of the bourgeoisie. And I think that comes to reality or that's a, a perfect metaphor for the system we've in seen New that, Zealand. Um, this last week we've had a bunch of polls out that once again show this overwhelming support for taxing wealth, um, for policies which will help to kind of uh, meet meet the needs of reducing inequity uh, and neither of the major parties are, are willing to do anything other than rule that out. Um, it's our, our political system has become unmoored from the people. It's very, very clear that that's the case. Uh, and it's frustrating as hell. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm just, I'm just sort of pondering out loud, right. I, about your, um, interpretation of people like seeing the name labor basically and associating that with uh workers rights or kind of even at a broader level like yeah. who's going to stand up for the people what that the the problem that poses for me is like how much evidence do people need before they stop that association like i think the the problem is if you take that to its logical conclusion you get the division between it. the choices either are like quote unquote fix the Labour Party, you know, make it actually stand for what it says it stands for, which I think is basically on a hiding to nowhere right now, or um, disillusion people with this like mistaken impression that they still have after 30 plus years of it being, I think, clearly the case that they don't stand for you and they're not on your team. That the, it kind of black pills people, I think, once you say they they don't stand for you, but also like there is there is an alternative right there's the liberal democratic kind of faux 
inputs that we have as it currently exists and also that's it like bad luck they don't stand for you uh stay home on election day don't campaign this is why i always try and like Uh, be real clear like yes this is all true but we can make slight movements to increase the um conditions to be slightly more positive for organizing um towards a future that is better and like it's it's really horrible to have to talk about that like you know is this just incrementalism yes but like for good maybe um and not just to like um kind of push back the the tide of the poly crisis um under under a neoliberal capitalist system um yeah there is a political reality here and there's like a physical reality uh we need to organize more we need more people to have a shared understanding of uh the way that things are currently governed and need to be governed what like the the democratic the western liberal democracy exists whether we like it or not um we do not have the organizing power to actually rise up and overthrow it but you know that's not going to happen right now how do we increase the conditions even marginally at every given step of the way you know month to month day to day uh to get us to a point where that can happen um it's it's yeah. big it's it's huge and i understand why people are overwhelmed by it and disillusioned um and i think we can it's good to discuss it and talk about it and um uh empathize with those feelings because you know the uh the way that people usually seem to be doing that in the political spaces go oh look if you don't vote it's all your fault and you can't complain um and, you know vote vote labor or no one else um or it's your fault that national gets in and like fuck off like that that's not helpful yeah and um i just want to say you said that it's impossible to actually conceptualize a new new system right now i mean maybe i don't know oh, not for me not for me it has happened <laughs> it it has happened across the world in many parts of the world there are exemplars there are exemplars from kerala for example where i'm from where we saw a confluence of you know people organizing at the grassroots level um you know study classes organized at the village level um um the art and in and also young people like you know uh, one of 200 all coming together to question the very foundations of the system um you know uh, at the time it was a feudal system which which in my view is very similar to a capitalist system um where you know uh, the upper caste people and the elite among uh, christians and muslims but also basically most of them upper caste owned all the land and the other people were landless workers we are a similar situation where the top 10 percent own 60 percent of the wealth in new zealand the bottom 50 percent own only two percent this is a huge inequality and it's you know it's it's like feudal levels of inequality happening here this is the opportunity for us to, you know, organize and reimagine the primacy of property and individualism. Um, um, we need to, you know, refocus um, uh, our 
our principles upon which um, our state needs to be built. Um, uh, the primacy of profits and property has led us to this where we are in terms of the environmental crisis, in terms of the hunger crisis globally, in terms of colonialism and its violence and, and its manifestations and neo-colonialism. All these things actually do come from the profit motive and the primacy of a private property over, you know, collective well-being of human society. So I think, if not now, when are we going to think about these things? And yeah, we need to organize, but we also need to organize, you know, in this ways, in ways that we can reimagine a new system and we can join other efforts in other parts of the world, um, which are actually questioning um, the foundations of liberal democracy and reimagining um, something new. Uh, can we change the terms of it? at least, you know, the, the terms of it, we could, we could do that by shifting the discourse away uh, from what it is right now. And we need a counter discourse. And I think one of 200 is playing a role in, pro in providing a counter discourse, but um, that needs to become um, the mainstream common sense. Uh, otherwise, otherwise, we will just be uh, dismissed as, as loonies or something. Um, we need to provide that analysis and that theory that people can see that, the you know, their suffering is systemic. I think that's a really good point. Um, and in terms of like individualizing that um, to maybe an unhelpful extent, let's see, um, when, when people talk about, um, uh, you know, feeling disillusioned or disconnected or whatever, um, I totally agree with the idea, like read about what's happening overseas. Um, of course, like it's interesting that often people talk about, oh, I don't read about current events because it's depressing and like it's only bad stuff that's happening. Yeah, that's because you're reading uh, depressing capitalist sources that aren't providing you with alternatives to how things are currently working, right? They want to tell you that uh, things are bad in, you know, insert African country here because, you know, insert recent person here is corrupt that's the amount of depth we're going into there <laughs> don't read those sources that's you're not going to learn anything there right um they're keeping you in the dark and feeding you shit like a mushroom um but there are plenty of sources about not only current events around the world providing alternative um understandings and analyses but also historical sources like read history um and that can provide you with alternatives to what's currently going on it's so easy to look at just around you wake up and you know, watch TV three and go, this is reality as it, as it exists, but it's not, we're at a very um, particular inflection point in history and you can learn lessons, creative lessons from the past and from other places in the world to allow you to interpret and project forward and try to, you know, implement your will around you and see what you, what you actually prefer that you can have a kind of more hopeful lens to look at uh, political moments like this. Yeah, I was I was just thinking, should we talk about the second leaders no, debate and some of the interesting things? We don't have time now. We don't have time. We're basically going to wrap it now, I think. Um, which uh, is fine. Like sometimes these conversations go in a different direction. I just wanted to talk about yeah, the drug laws would have been really important to touch upon at some maybe we, next. All we needed to know time. was that neither Chris has uh, taken MDMA. <laughs> But yeah, it was probably yeah. Uh, the fact that this they they both basically believe it's not criminal, but they're not willing to remove the the law. It's just yeah, yeah. perfect, perfect, um, pure example of exactly the kind of people and positions they hold. Well, thank you so much for joining me, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Philip and Josephine. This has been great. Yeah, it was very theoretical rather than.
I think we were just talking a lot of, yeah. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes it happens. Look, sometimes you have to get into it. Yeah, we started very micro and then zoomed out to very macro. So hopefully that's what people want. It doesn't matter if they wanted it or not, because this is going live tomorrow. Because that's what you're getting. That's been another episode of 1 of 200 Current Events. Uh, By the time you listen to this, our pledge me will have closed successfully. Um, Over 70 people um, have given. We've met our goal. We we went past our goal uh, of $5,000 to help fund uh, us to continue building independent media here from a left-wing perspective. That is absolutely fantastic. We're blown away. I can't thank everyone enough for um, not not just uh, giving us money, uh, but sharing this, talking to people about it, going out and engaging with people and getting other people involved. Uh, everything has been fantastic. I'm really excited to actually put this money to use. It's almost all earmarked to go straight out the door. Um, a lot of that will be going towards continuing to build uh, the website we've been working on, uh, trestle.nz. I'll chuck a link in the summary um which is one of these tools for helping to organize uh these different perspectives um it pulls all the different um releases and announcements from advocacy and progressive organizations and puts them in one place uh we're hoping to make that a little bit more structured um so that anyone can go there and see like what's happening in these spaces seeing how they can get involved without having to get it through the um the lens of the current uh, mainstream media or political parties. I think it's really a uh, great concept. It's it's working really well as it is in its simple form. I'm really excited to see that do a little bit more. We're hoping to get more content out in the next couple of weeks as well as the election gets closer and closer. We are supporting the Triple the Vote campaign. I'll put a link to that in the summary as well. Click on it. Go and get other people um, to vote as well. If, if we all get to other people uh, and triple the vote, um, I mean, get more people. Uh, if you can, uh, quadruple or quintuple the vote. Um, that would be great as well. Uh, because we do need to turn out this election if, um, you know, the left is going to have any chance. Um, it's an incredibly tight race and it's still <laughs> really weighted towards National and ACT and New Zealand first. So go and do that. That's been another week. Uh, thank you for listening. Share, retweet, rate us, you know, whatever. Um, we'll Catch you next midweek for hopefully a really exciting uh, international relations uh, podcast. See you later. If I fit inside, I'm living a pointless life, but learning all your lessons, fucking politics. It's no distinction. Words are now. It's paid with good intentions, and I'll admit that I'm at a loss for what to say. Live amongst the people every day